Hi, my name is Deb McFarlane Enright, and this is 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night, a podcast that works to provide influencers for you to listen to in the social impact ecosystem. Today, I am honored to have Tanya Odom with us. We're going to talk about understanding the transformational framing for a conversation that centers on the unintended consequences of good work of the social impact organizations that we talk about, uh, identifying some of them, seeking clarity on how to safeguard against them and pondering the work yourself out of a job goal that these organizations should be moving towards to solve population level society problems. Tanya is in fact a world renowned expert on these kinds of issues. She is a highly regarded consultant, coach, facilitator, teacher, writer, and thought leader. Tanya's unique portfolio career has allowed her to work in the education, private sector, corporate, not-for-profit, NGO, law enforcement, and university college arenas. In her roles, she has facilitated hundreds of workshops for adults and youth around the United States and the world. Here's a list of some of the areas that she has focused on. Get ready. Innovation and creativity, diversity and inclusion, team building conflict management, educational equity, girls' leadership development, coaching women of color, and youth engagement. Tanya and I serve on the board at Vassar College, and when I told her about the podcast, she was thrilled to hear this work was going on, and she wondered, we both wondered, what a conversation about serving and focusing on the needs of those being served could look like. I've invited her on 3 a.m., There's a lot to talk about, so let's jump in. Well, Tanya, it is so nice to have you here for our 3 a.m. podcast conversation. So thank you for your time. I know it's very valuable. And so I really do appreciate you giving us some time today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to us speaking and connecting this way. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Just so everyone knows, we are doing this remote. She is giving us uh, time in, a, in her schedule. And so she has dialed in from Manhattan. So from Manhattan to Nashville, this is going to be a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I'm so glad you're here. I want to let folks know a little bit of the why. You and I serve on the board at Vassar, and you also serve as a trustee, which is, you know, phenomenal opportunities for both of us to give back. But we are aware of what each other does kind of in a cursory way. I contacted you, I think during a two and a half day anti-racism workshop that our Center for Nonprofit Management held here. And I was grateful to be invited to join the CNM team for those two and a half days, which really was a reawakening, I think, for me of certain pieces of my heart, quite honestly, that I think need a bigger voice and I need to lean into to that work. And you and I just, I think we couldn't stop sharing articles and um, TED Talks and, you know, all that kind of stuff, as well as great books. And I also appreciated your leadership on, yeah, Deb, this is good, but let's also look at things this way. And that's exactly what you do on a large global scale. So let's get started by just understanding, Tanya, how you identify 
what you do? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, I mean, I was grateful that you sort of reached out to me as you were going through that session and thinking about things. And I think that's an ideal scenario of how I often work with an organization or a person. So for the last 25 years, I've been doing work in the diversity and inclusion and equity space. And when I first started, as I told you, we used to only say diversity. And at that point, I think about 25 years ago, generally that might mean sort of education, education around, at that point, it was there was a really strong focus on the business case for diversity if I was working in a corporation. Or in schools, there would be work around understanding cross-cultural dynamics in the classroom, understanding anti-bias curriculum. So, you know, I've been really fortunate to be able to work across sectors in the NGO, not-for-profit, arts, culture, law enforcement, and private sector spaces. And what it's evolved to be, you know, when people ask me what I do, I am, it's interesting, I was just away last week working with a client and, and one of the, you know, drivers in one of the car services which usually happens, says, what do you do? And the way I frame it, depending on where I am, is I work on issues of human capital Mm. and I work on issues that connect to any issues that connect to people. And with a particular focus on issues of, of equity and inclusion and creating environments where we can really make sure that everyone has the same opportunities and can contribute fully and that the organization is particularly mission-driven organizations are aligning with their values of what they say they want to do, not just externally, but internally as well. Wow. What a great gig. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the stories, and we probably could go on forever, but, and the humanness of how you portray what you do. I have to ask, so it's a quarter of a century that you've been, gosh, I shouldn't have put it that way, should I? But we're friends. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> oh my gosh, that makes it sound like um, forever, but it seems such a prominent need and a piece of the constant or I would say the current geopolitical social conversation that certainly is going on in our country and around the world. Are you finding an increase in that conversation? And what are some of the different places that conversation is taking place? Yeah, it's a great question. So this is how I frame it within the United States context. And that is that my work absolutely has changed over the course of the last three years. I think that there has been an increase, and there's a variety of reasons for this, in some of the ways in which we are all seeing issues of inequity that it's often shared via video, social media, etc. So that's raised the level of conversations, in particular around issues of race. So when we talk about For example, the issues of Black men and the killings of Black men in America. That's really raised sort of the conversation around race across sectors. You know, what do we know about the dynamics in certain communities? What do we know about issues of historic um, racism and inequality? And, And also, how do I, as a person in a workplace, how do I understand that this is maybe being felt by people around me very differently? So I think that's one element. The other element that I'm seeing more of, and this is global, I mean, I've spent the last several years doing many more conversations on challenging conversations which basically is about how we're really, I think, much more aware now that many of us view the world, our community, our government, our policies, what things 
should look like in very different ways. And I think I have noticed that more in the last three years than I ever have before. And I think, you know, sometimes people think I'm specifically talking about politics or an election. And I I actually am not. That's, of course, one component. But I'm also talking about if I look at a global level, I'm looking at the Brexit decision and, and how the Brexit decision has impacted conversations about immigration, migration and the refugee crisis globally. I'm looking at sort of issues of the EU and how the EU has um, a mandate around women and and looking at women on boards. I'm looking at my work with the UN and how in Geneva, there's something called the Geneva Gender Champions Pledge, where many senior members of UN entities have signed a pledge saying they will not be on a panel if there isn't a woman present on the panel as well. So there's just this series of things and changes that I think are absolutely impacted by what's happening in the outside world. So in the macro, we're talking about putting structures into place as though the last example that you gave, I won't serve on a board unless... Mm -hmm. With the hope of inculcating those so that they don't have to become a prescription for participation, but in fact, that's just what you're going to see. So on major boards, you're going to see women, people of color, uh, different peoples of faith for whoever, so that the board represents the end user, I think is what I'm trying to get to. Whether it's in product, Mm -hmm. service, program, those folks who are to benefit are actually at the decision design distribution table in a participatory sense um, so that they're part of the conversation at the very beginning versus just at the end. And we're all just kind of hoping that it works, you know, throwing things up against the wall and go, well, maybe this will work in this community or I've read a book, so I think it'll work in this community or I have a friend of a friend of a friend and and I think we're pretty sure it's going to work in this community. Am I categorizing that probably in a in a very basic way, but am I tracking what you're saying? No, that to me is the ideal. No, what you've said is is actually much more than basic. It's it's the ideal because, you know, this is sort of the conundrum, I think, of the work sometimes. People often ask me my thoughts about targets or about, you know, making sure that we're saying a woman has to be on a board or a panel. And I think what you said is incredibly important, and that is that we're not just doing this to sort of have a woman on a panel or a board because someone said we should do it. We know that this is in fact what's important. And actually this is what's fair. When we look at percentage (laughs) of women in society, when we look at the contributions of women, it's not just, and I can tell you horror stories about, you know, how we, in fact, John um, Powell, who's at Haas School, talks about this concept of othering and belonging. Yes. And he talks about these opportunities of us either having someone feel like they're an other or like belong, or they belong. And I attended the Othering and Belonging conference that they did. And he said something which just struck me. He said, if you're truly talking about someone belonging, and this is directly connected to what you just said, he said that they are co-creating whatever they're participating in. So you're, you know, they're co-creating. They are, in fact, what you said. They're at the table. They're a decision maker. They're part of it. And you're right. In the world of diversity and inclusion, we sometimes talk about a concept that's been written about called built-in versus bolted-on. So that mm. I'm not getting to the end of this, you know, conference agenda or program, or I'm not getting to the end of the board slate and saying, oh my gosh, we don't have a person of color. We don't have a woman. We don't have, you know, but versus at the beginning of the process, I'm 
I'm saying, you know, what search firms are we using that might be able to help us make sure that we have a diverse candidate slate? Where are we holding this board meeting event, et cetera? You know, I was just reading in Mindful Magazine, I think it was, about, you know, someone who uses a wheelchair for an award. And in fact, the stage was not um, equipped or accessible for the person to originally, you know, to be able to accept the award initially, right? So where, if I'm saying that I'm creating this place where everyone could come, where everyone's ideas are included, where everyone could be celebrated, but then I can't get a person on a stage where they're winning an award, then in fact, we weren't thinking about this built-in concept of inclusion and diversity. We, it was not part of the thinking or development process. It was actually too late or at the end. So we talked a little bit about that. This sounds like it's an add-on, right? It's a bow on the Christmas tree. It's a look at us. Uh, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's looking at a picture and, and taking inventory. And what the hard work is, is to move away from counting the faces, the color, uh, the representations in a photo and feeling good, right? Like, that's great. We got that done. Mm -hmm. But it's really understanding that that's just a normal photo. So it's not as though you're keeping score or look at me, I've got this versus this other group that does not. And to your point, of course, when you're thinking about somebody accepting an award, you just naturally think about the access to the stage as you would if you were somebody who was ambulatory and making sure that the stairs maybe had a railing in case the person was older versus just thinking about, okay, and then the person's going to walk up onto the stage and they're going to talk. And yeah, and what happens if you actually had somebody who may not be able to speak and they had to sign? And how do you equip the audience so they can understand what that person is actually saying in terms of their speech so that then that even becomes broader in terms of accessing who can tell their story in those kinds of settings. Man, it's so fun to speak with you because I, well, first of all, I applaud the work for as long as you've been in this journey, and I know I will sound it, particularly in our conversation, but it is very new for me, and I'm still, every time we talk, I do learn more, and it really causes me to think more broadly, which of course is the purpose of, of all of this. Before we get into the social impact space itself, we did talk a little bit of how this is manifesting itself in terms of the curiosity of those in leadership about how to communicate this more broad version of understanding of those who are in your employ or who you might be leading in in another context. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I want to just say, you know, your two things that come to mind and what you just said. One is learning to see beyond what in fact I know or what I understand is to me such an important piece of the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, because it's very easy for me even as a person who does this work, to not understand the ways in which I have privilege and power. So I was recently out of the country and I did this presentation and it was really well received and I was leaving the venue and I walk into the women's restroom and in fact, there was a woman there pumping in the women's restroom. And Mm. it was a little bit of a deflating moment, (laughs) you know, after, you know this, but after you do this sort of program that your thinking was well received. And although I wasn't part of the design of the space 
space or the venue, it really wouldn't have been a big deal in a huge, beautiful hotel to find a space where this woman could have pumped in a more private place. And this is actually something that's been discussed by many organizations. And I think what it does, it just says it's more of the quote business case for diversity or thinking about how do I get people around the table that are helping me plan things so that I know that different ways of being, talking, living, experiencing the world is included. And I think this connects to the communication piece. I think that what I've experienced in the last couple of years has been an increase in leaders actually struggling in some in some ways to find a way to address all of the social issues that are happening outside of the workplace that we are seeing coming into the workplace even more. And, you know, people will challenge me and say, well, what about the 60s when you had, you know, riots and when you had the killings of people like Dr. King and Robert Kennedy and, you know, you had that entering the workplace? Absolutely. But what we're seeing now, and again, I would credit social media, there are different generational expectations younger employees, the research suggests really have a stronger um, expectation that leaders will comment. But then there's research from the conference board we're seeing and, and from Edelman's trust barometer, which I had spoken to you about, really pointing to the fact that people are expecting leaders to talk about social issues. Now, I always say this to be very clear, they're not saying take a side, but for something like the immigration issue or the issue of children being separated at the border, people and companies are looking to the leaders to have some sort of acumen in terms of communicating what in fact we're all seeing and not always able to process or absorb. And this has created a really, in some instances, a challenge, but also a time for reflection for certain leaders. Because many of us told you don't want to say anything, you know, it does, it's not your place. And I've had so many leaders be very honest and say, listen, I saw that video of this happening. And it bothered me, but I didn't know that I needed to say something internally. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a huge shift mm-hmm. um, in, in what we're seeing. And I often say, I'm not a crisis communicator. You know, I think I probably communicate pretty well, hopefully at this point. But what I would also say, with all due respect to people in that space, is they're not looking for someone to sort of create a statement, right? X company, X firm has this to say. It's looking for their leader as a person to say, listen, I'm confused too. (laughs) This bothers me too. I don't know what to make of it. Or we all have feelings about this. You know, those are the things I think that I'm seeing more. And I think we're going to continue to see that. And so there's a real thought amongst a lot of us in the diversity and inclusion space around, you know, what are leaders doing? So there's something that many people may have heard of called the CEO Action Pledge, which if you look it up online, it's sort of a pledge that CEOs from universities, not-for-profits, corporations, et cetera, are making to one, to sort of speak up around certain issues, to make a comment and a pledge that they would address things like unconscious bias. But you're also seeing them coming together to talk about how they're having some challenging conversations in their organizations. And I think we'll continue to see that as sort of our world continues to sort of swirl um, with different issues. Your description shows a shift in the humility of leadership Mm. so that somebody can say to you there, I'm feeling vulnerable. I know I'm supposed to do something. You know, the model is always 
that those at the helm know what's going on. They'll tamp down that that they don't really understand. They'll lift up that which they do. There's the the brand to be aware of um, outside the walls of the office or the corporation or the or the endeavor. Uh, and and you've also talked about how that is shifting so that those in the workspace or across the miles in the in the variety of offices a large corporation could have just really actually would lift up the vulnerability of the leader mm. for someone to say, you know, I I did live a life of privilege. I, I don't know what that's like. I'm I'm still learning, but I can understand that amongst the folks that I have the honor of working with, there's some pain. And it's pain that is generational and it's pain that goes back into family trees for hundreds of years. And while I can't tell you I've walked it, I am learning to try to understand what that could be like and what that could do in terms of another's reference to the world, reference to workspace, reference to what they're trying to do. The story of the pumping after the conference is interesting to me because certainly generationally, there were just lines you didn't cross. Mm -hmm. And what I understand now, because of the workspace changing so much and it's so fluid that I don't know how else to say it. It seems as though it is reflecting an inclusion of life as it is in the workplace versus this, it's nine o'clock, I got to hit the, you know, hit the desk. It's five o'clock. Now I get to go back to my life. Mm -hmm. Some of that is good and bad, right? It, it bleeds in and the balance is, can be tricky. But from having a variety of folks, including the end users at the decision-making table, understanding that a stage for someone who's won an award could actually be a huge gate and barrier to receiving that recognition to the woman who had to find in a very public place something that is really quite intimate for for her and her child and is a practice that, you know, is recognized and held up around the world um, to make sure that the baby's not only nourished but becomes, you know, quite strong because of that practice. It really does change that nature of work and Moving in now to the social impact world, Tanya, what do you think some of the unintended consequences of those that are trying to disrupt the status quo and make the world better in these conversations about diversity, inclusion, equity, what are some of the unintended consequences of those who seek and are in the trenches of doing good work? Mm -hmm. Well, I think your language is so important, and that is that, you know, if we follow the work and research on conscious bias, then we would know that unconscious bias is pervasive and exists in every sector. So I think even those of us with sort of missions to make the world better, make my community better, make, you know, everything better, it doesn't mean we're sort of absolved from living in what some of us call sort of the fishbowl because we're surrounded by the water and we don't know we're there of issues of privilege, of issues of historic marginalization and, and socialization. And so if you look at the unconscious bias research, it would say that we all, in fact, experience or can have unconscious bias. It doesn't go away. We can learn strategies to mitigate it, but it's there. So that's one thing that comes to mind. The second thing about the sector is that I think that um, 
we can't take out, and I think you said it so well a little bit earlier, the notion that we're going to be counting people as a way to look at diversity versus we're going to be looking at our culture and ways in which we may not be including people or creating a sense of belonging in the way that we want to. So I think this sector also has had some challenges in that. How do we look at, even if we're doing good work, the way in which we may have created or recreated systems of power and privilege, Mm. even within a small organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last thing I'll say on this, which I see across the board, and actually, you know, I'll send you some of these links to this research, but Deloitte did some really interesting research in June that for me, I don't do a session now without presenting, because I think in the sector in particular, we look at good work. We look at sort of practices that in fact make things better. And Deloitte sort of had this research that said, you know, one of the biggest things that organizations may not be addressing is everyday bias. And what they mean by that are, you know, frequency of bias, unconscious bias, and microaggression. So those small behaviors impact over the course of time that really send messages to people that they're included or not. And so I say this in every sector, particularly sectors and organizations that are mission-driven, is I think in some ways it takes a little bit more reflection because we have to also see ourselves as products of something much bigger than just our organization or just a space that really has good intentions. It's not always about good intentions. It's really about acknowledging the larger scope and, and way in which we are part of a society that historically has not valued everyone in the same way. I think this is one of the biggest things that I now try in my work, more so than I think I did in the beginning, to get across is that we can't look at this conversation in an ahistorical way anymore. So this is the 400th anniversary of the arrival of enslaved people to the United States, to Virginia. I can't sort of take that out of the context of looking at how we discuss race in America or looking at how we discuss how Black people in the sector and other sectors are treated. You know, so this this historical context for me is something that I think every sector could do a little bit of a better job of thinking about. I appreciate all of that. In the social impact space, there are opportunities for organizations to make a certain portion of the society feel better about who they are, Mm. if they serve and how they serve, which for me contributes to the existing power structure Mm -hmm. and perhaps in a very innocent way versus seeing themselves as you were talking about in this larger kind of matrix Also understanding that those who are being served, sometimes, maybe at a level that should be alarming, are much like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, not brought in Mm -hmm. to the design of the model of the service or the mission to be delivered. So we may feel good in the delivery of the mission, Mm -hmm. but we may be, in some sense, missing the mark because the time has not been taken. I mean, it, it is difficult when you hear 
kids are going to school and they're hungry, or you realize that in marginalized communities that a child after lunch at school may not have a nutritious meal or much to eat until Monday morning when they go for breakfast, that that should rip your heart out. You Mm -hmm. should feel compelled to do something. And supplying snacks and energy bars is certainly a way to onboard into that world. I also wonder what it would look like if knowing that piece of the the kind of the marginalized communities ecosystem and how it impacts then education mm-hmm. and how it impacts just the quality of life for the student, let alone the family, mm-hmm. how we need to just kind of recalibrate that. So if we know that that's a need, it's really, there's a larger context that needs to be put into. And I really ask a lot of people, should folks in the social impact space who are delivering some good service program, should they be working with the vision in time to put themselves out of work Mm -hmm. so that we are getting to population level social challenges? You know, so you want to fix hunger or provide affordable housing or provide workforce development. Those are so knitted together in this web that, uh, to your point, started a long time ago, particularly in this country, that those are the conversations and those are the those are the folks around the table that I think we need to bring to the table so we can understand nobody wants to stand in line. Nobody wants to get additional services. Nobody wants to not pay for stuff. They want to figure out the labyrinth that's been put in place because of who they are and how they sit in our historical society. Right. And so let me just say this example. So for me, there are two things that come to mind in the example you gave, which is incredibly powerful. One is that I think part of what the sector could do and the space could do is sort of to ask the question of why in this community do we see levels of hunger at this level, right? Because that is, in fact, looking at this from a from a more structural perspective, right? What, what am I looking at? What's the systemic? What are the systemic issues? And you name some of them that are connected to this child perhaps being hungry in this community, in this state, Etc. And then the second thing is absolutely yes, bring the people to the table who, in fact, are the ones that are most highly impacted. However, I also have seen sometimes in the space, if we still are looking at people from an us them mm. or an othering and belonging perspective, mm. I wouldn't want to bring that person, that child, that family, those community members to the table if they're having to be the ones educating us. We haven't done our own work. You right. know, after Katrina, right. Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, I went down to Katrina with Mel King, who's an incredible mentor, teacher, civil rights icon in Boston. And there are just a couple of things that I learned from him. And he and I were talking about this recently. So first of all, we knew we wanted to go down because he was invited and he was inviting me with him. But he said to me, we can't go down until we're invited. So even though he's this like larger than life Mm. figure, you know, celebrated all over the world, he literally said, we cannot go down until we're invited. So look at that us them piece, right? He is this icon. In fact, though, we are going into a community as a guest. The second thing that I learned in that is when we went down to to New Orleans after Katrina and we went two or three times, he, he was so awesome at teaching just by example. But one of the things we kept hearing from people in New Orleans, particularly those impacted by the hurricane, was 
we were traumatized before Katrina. Yes. So we're happy that these conversations are happening, but we also don't want to just say, what are we doing post Katrina? Because we had one of the lowest, you know, graduation attainment rates in the United States before this. And I say all that to say that um, I learned something because here I was gung ho, right? We were going to go work with youth. We were going to go do this. I love this. This is work that's important to me. And I had to take a step back saying, okay, what is my role? What's my privilege around this? And I had, and you're, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. I had to really think from a humility perspective around putting myself in the shoes of the people that were there, but also looking at them as the people who had more information mm. than I would ever have. Yes. All I could do was do reading. I could listen really well, but you know, they were basically saying to us, listen, know your history and look at New Orleans before this, as opposed to responding to what we were saying was the quite crisis post-Katrina. So everything you said about the example of bringing people to the table, yes. I just think we have to also change sometimes the dynamics by which we bring people to the table in some instances. Yes, that takes me back five steps, right? So yeah, it's great if you're going to bring end users in and everybody is speaking, you know, into the same vision and we're working in the, in the larger, I used the word before, labyrinth to solve these population social challenges. But if we don't see from whence we've come mm-hmm. and understand the threads and roots of where we are today, I, I doubt it's a, you know, the past is prologue and history will repeat itself, I think, and although that could be true. I think it also says, and this is to your point, you're going to miss the mark. You're going to miss it. You're going to feel good about applying a salve, but you are not contributing anything mm-hmm. to the solution. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're not helping actualize people or center people, right? That's a lot of the language in the social justice space right mm-hmm. now. Whose reality are we centering? Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to also help us come up with solutions that actually are most effective in addressing what's needed. So I can tell you, you know, living abroad and volunteering abroad when I did that, I was often interested in hearing some of the things that didn't work. And it was often that when I was working in Mexico at close to the border that, you know, and this was many, many years ago, but that the organization that I was volunteering with was very clear that we needed to come up with solutions that worked for the people that lived in these colonias because they're the ones that were going to be there, we're not. And I think about my dad who grew up in in East Harlem in the 1940s as a black man who was poor. And he said something to me so long ago that I'll never forget. He said they used to have all of these volunteers coming into Harlem to help out and to volunteer. And he said it was great. He said, but what you would notice is that they would all leave when the lights went off. Mm. So when the street lights went off, the volunteers were gone. And the people like my dad who lived in these communities were still there. So that's a reality that we have to acknowledge that, you know, I've worked in homeless shelters. I've worked with, you know, in a dropout prevention program and with gang members. I've done that work, but I come home to a different reality. And if we don't acknowledge some of those power dynamics and privilege dynamics, I do think we're missing a big piece of this conversation. I think that's exactly right. And that really gets to the meat of it as we think about how social impact organizations can serve populations that they are truly trying to serve, it's the drop-in, drop-out that can actually be an affront to those that you are trying to serve. And it is one of those, 
well, this is nice. They'll come in for a little bit, then they'll leave. There's no trust ever established. There's no vulnerability ever established between. The conversation is one way. And we can do better in this space. In this space, if we go and ask those questions and find out what's best and and understand the, the real social context, then I think we go about having everyone included, uh, but in a way which causes the different communities, if you will, to see each other as us mm-hmm. versus other. Mm-hmm. And that that will certainly take time. And, and I think I really do believe this is all not for you. And I understand that. But I think for many of us, it really is new. And it has to cause differences in conversation and differences in planning out, even in strategic planning and maybe even in the development, you know, work about what it is the ultimate goal for these organizations are in terms of how they're going to service their particular niche in this world of trying to make the world better. I know we're coming up hard and fast on on your schedule, and sometimes this simplifies it to a point where, I don't know, it may undermine this delicious conversation that we've had. But if you were going to speak to folks, and let's just say it's a whole room of people who just want to do good, some who have large organizations, some who have woken up at 3 a.m. and said, gosh, I've got to do something about this. Are there a few things that you would list off for them, Tanya, to say to get started in this conversation, no matter where you are in the journey of your organization, These are the three to five things that you all need to sit down, think about, talk about, um, and gather information on. Mm, Such a great question. I think the first would be, I think we have to be willing to see things with different eyes. You know, we you used the word curiosity before. I love the research coming out about curiosity because it is about asking questions. I think in the diversity world, we talk about intent not equaling impact. And that is hard for many of us, particularly those that want to do good work and that believe we're doing good work. So, you know, I was in grad school and Mel King was my professor in a in a class and he had us do an activity where we wrote our name in the middle of a circle and we talked about all of the different systems that had impacted us in our life. And talk about a moment of privilege. Here I am sitting in an Ivy League institution (laughs) in graduate school, and I was annoyed at him. And the annoying thing is he still remembers years later how annoyed I looked at him, right? But the annoyance came from, and not that my whole life has been privileged, but literally there are some of us that have been impacted by so many different systems of education, housing, mass incarceration, criminal justice system. I mean, food insecurities and food. I mean, there are so many things, but that was not something that I had been taught to think about Mm. in my work, even though I was doing not-for-profit work, even though I was sort of in communities, even though I had volunteered, all of those great things, but I hadn't thought about systems. And I think the work in, in many in the space is to look at a systems analysis and a systems perspective of the particular issue we're working on. And then I think the harder conversations are about unconscious bias. The harder conversations are about what are the aspects of my identity that in fact are, that carry a privilege that I may not always see, but I need to unpack and think about. And then, you know, something as simple as, you know, we wouldn't need as many of these pledges and panel, you know, assessments if we didn't really take a genuine look and think beyond who we are most comfortable with and said, who are we missing around this table? Whose perspective 
do we not know? Have we not heard from? Have we not incorporated? And I'm amazed sometimes at how that's not being done. You know, I tell people, follow different people on social media. Something as simple as that, looking at how other people see things differently can open your eyes in a way that that um, we want to think about things differently. And the last thing I'll say on this is it doesn't help for us to sit in a place of feeling guilty, angry, defensive. Mm. I can sit here and say, but I haven't always experienced privilege. And this, of course not. There are ways in which all of us have been marginalized. Absolutely. That doesn't help, though, to compare oppression or to compare issues of isms. That, that just is not a way to move forward. It's really about how do we want to make things better, just like the work that we're doing is trying to make things better. And that's going to also start with my own way of looking at things. I appreciate so, that. I mean, those are just some of the things that come to the top of my head. They're wonderful. I well, Tanya, thank you for this conversation. You and I, I'm thrilled that we will have years uh, to continue this conversation and you can continue to help me. The things that have kind of lifted up for me as we close is that this onboarding of learning mm -hmm. can happen at any age and at any time, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is a marvelous thing to understand. It's not, uh, it's not closed to anyone. It, in fact, is open and should be mandatory for all. And that the humility that comes with this kind of learning is exactly appropriate. Mm -hmm. for all people at, at the table and that the, the effort itself is worthy of not recognition, but is worthy of note. Mm -hmm. Again, not in a congratulatory way, but in for some at the table, it would be, well, now I'm glad you know that. And for others, it would be, gosh, I never did. And I am glad I, right. I do now because it will certainly alter how I even take my next step. Mm -hmm. You're a gem. Thank you for um, this conversation. Thank you for the work that you're doing around the world. And I look forward to seeing you soon and learning more from you. We'll put these references, Tanya, that you have given us so graciously on the website and also push it out to our subscribers. So again, thank you so much for joining us on 3AM. This has been a brand new kind of conversation for our podcast, and I am very grateful that you are now putting us in a new direction. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. And thank you to those who are listening. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Deb. And that's our conversation with Tanya Odom, a global consultant, leader, spiritual leader, and wonderful conversationalist. I certainly am inspired. You need to know exactly how large and unique Tanya's portfolio is. She's co-author of the Evaluation in the Field of Education for Democracy, Human Rights, and Tolerance. She's been named Diversity Best Practices, a diversity thought leader on Twitter, and has been over the last three years, spent a great deal of time globally facilitating sessions and panels focused on challenging conversations. I think that's really kind of what our focus is gonna be in 2020. How do we, on this podcast, work together to truly think about ways to disrupt the status quo, to make the world better. This is Deb McFarlane Enright. You've been listening to 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night, a podcast devoted to making sure that we all work to make the world better. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to our next time together. Bye now.